episode of the rig podcast we are going to be talking to jim mckenna uh attorney who just had a major victory in the massachusetts uh drug lab scandal case he is going to talk about that victory and uh some more breaking news that we have in this podcast so definitely check it out episode four, Commonwealth versus Sutton, and we are going to have the attorney involved in that case, uh, Jim McKenna, on today. Hello, Jim. How are you doing? Well, thank you very much for having me on. Doing very well. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Awesome. And Jim, uh, we want all of our guests at the beginning of our show uh, have been introducing themselves. I'd like to kind of continue that. And if you could give your kind of your uh, credentials, your background, and how you got involved in Commonwealth versus Sutton and where you kind of fit in in the overall landscape of the Massachusetts drug lab scandal. Well, thank you very much. I've been representing defendants in this matter for seven years now. I started back in 2013 representing a gentleman named Juan Otero. And at that time, I'm a defense attorney. It's kind of what I do in was my involvement in this. And uh, as of January 2013, I was surprised by the arrest of Sonia Farrakh. Uh, Mr. Otero was involved with charges that stemmed from the Amherst lab. And as of January 2013, it seemed as though there was another Dukin. And by April 2013, it was apparent that things weren't quite right. By May 2013, I'm filing motions saying, please let me talk to the investigators who are supposedly investigating Mr. Otero because the only charges brought against Farrakh concerned what was found the first day. That was the beginning. And the last seven years since then, I've represented a half dozen defendants who have been involved in both the Hinton Lab and the Amherst Lab, and it's been my privilege to represent Mr. Sutton for the last couple of years. Right. So take us through. Um, so there was a major decision this week that's got some coverage from the Globe and also WBUR. Um, could you take us through that recent decision that uh, went down this week and what the extent was of uh, that decision? What kind of impact this could have on the case overall? What was evident back in the Otero case in 2013 has been essentially proven in some respects, over the last several years, the government, the government has decided, decided back in 2013, not to investigate what Sonia Farrakh did. They stopped the investigation in 2013. We took them to the SJC in 2014. The decision came out in 2015 saying, of course you have to investigate what Sonia Farrakh did. And you have to determine the nature and extent of her misconduct. That was 2015. Using the law since developed there, we filed in 2018 a claim based upon the Commonwealth, the government's failure to investigate what Farrakh did in Boston. 
She tested in, supposedly tested in June of 2004, the drugs that were attributed to Mr. Sutton. She reported results anyway. These were among the 9,135 results reported at Hinton, at the Boston lab, the Hinton lab. And based on that, Mr. Sutton eventually was convicted of drug offenses. We filed in June of 2018 motions to have his sentence, his conviction vacated and the underlying charges dismissed because of the failure to investigate what, what Farrakh did. Now, how do you prove that no one investigated what Farrakh did? We asked the court to order the government to produce any records, any reports concerning such an investigation, knowing there weren't any. And it took six orders by the Superior Court and one by a single justice, the last order by the Superior Court threatening sanctions against the Middlesex DA's office <laughs> to get them to finally produce in January 2000, uh, January 2020, what they were supposed to produce by last summer. Essentially, we're able to show that there was an investigation of Iraq. But wait, there's more. <laughs> On January 24 of this year, they produced a document obtained from the Inspector General's office that indicated there should have been an investigation concerning seven chemists at the Hinton lab. And gentlemen, you, you know the red flag that came up in the Dukin matter, her high level of productivity. She produced a vast number of results, which you can do if you're not spending the time actually doing the testing. Right. If you're just, please, which is, according to a consultant retained by the Inspector General's office, the same thing these seven chemists did, not for the length of time that Dugan did it, but at different times. And now, over the last week or so, those materials, the emails involved, have been made public. Right, and those materials go back. So so in 2012, let's just give a little history. Uh, we've been doing it on the podcast, but anyways, in two, it bears repeating that in 2012, Governor Deval Patrick, at his request, uh, had the office of Massachusetts Office of the Inspector General uh, conduct an, what was supposed to be an independent top-to-bottom review of the drug lab. The OIG's mission was to carry out a comprehensive investigation of the operation and management of the drug lab from 2002 to 2012 to determine whether any chemists, supervisors, or managers at the drug lab committed any malfeasance um, that may have impacted the reliability of drug testing at the drug lab. Now, it's interesting because they say that that review was not supposed to be about just Annie Duke and even though she had been arrested at that time and they were looking to kind of see if anyone else did anything, but they narrowed their uh, review to exactly when Annie Dukin worked at the lab, right? Or, or just shortly before, or what did she start in 2002? Dukin started in um, 2004 okay. at the lab. Uh, I'm sorry, it could have been 2003. Okay. Overlap for seven months. It was 2003. She overlapped for seven months with Farrakh in the lab. Right. Which is entirely absent from the Inspector General's report. <laughs> these two chemists work together. Yes. And we'll we'll get into some of the things they did together. But so 15 months later, in April of 2014, the OIG released a report to the public. And um, they used excerpts in the experts to help them uh, get that report together 
in the field of forensic science. And that was um, Michael Wolf. Was he was a member of Markham LLC, and he was um, they were the forensics experts to help assist the OIG in their report, right? So uh, Mr. Wolf sent an email, his first subject that said lab production analysis on April 15th of 2013. In that email, he summarized uh, his analysis of testing numbers at the Hinton Drug Lab. This is what you were talking about before. He noticed that several chemists had neared or exceeded Annie Dukin's level of cocaine testing. Now, in the OIG report, they had said that Dukin became a suspect within the lab because of her high levels of drug testing, correct? Right. And so... And so this, by Mr. Wolf, back way back in 2013 when they were doing their investigation, said, oh, hold on, there was a bunch of other chemists who were doing very similar testing levels. No, baby. Right. In 2013, it, it was evident that to Mr. Wolf that investigation should have been directed towards these seven, one of which was Sonia Farrakh. Right. One of which was Sonia Farrakh. And that was... And which, you know, goes back to not investigating her or anyone. So this comes out this week. And But this is, and the funny thing about it is that this email was from 2013. So they had to have known. And in fact, according to your court filing and the documents within, the OIG responded to Mr. Wolf when he sent that email. Your analysis is really interesting. I'm looking forward to reviewing it more closely. And they, they you know, were... They were flagging it and saying, oh, you know, like they didn't want to do, they reviewed 200,000 documents in this, in the case they said, and they interviewed over 40 people um, while working with Markham to review all the lab's processes and procedures, quote, without a specific focus on Dukin. So how, if all of them, if all of, if they had seven other people testing as much evidence as Dukin, how do they not have anything on those people? How is there not an investigation? Has, has the OIG ever said why they didn't investigate or just that they didn't investigate? In, in terms of that, they have not really said much of anything except that they investigated those chemists. If I can step this back just a bit. Sure. In the report... In March 2014, the Inspector General issues issues his report, as you mentioned a moment ago. Mm -hmm. And in that report, it said Andy Dukin was a sole bad actor in Boston. This is the Inspector General. In fact, I had written to the Inspector General for help relative to the Amherst case the month before. And this is the Inspector General. An independent party, as we assumed at that time, and okay, so there's no problem with Farrakh's work in Boston. That's the conclusion I drew and pretty much everyone else drew in March of 2014. In June of the next year, 2015, attorney Luke Ryan obtains the medical records, the psychological records of Sonia Farrakh. They include reference to her using meth at Hinton. All right. Here's a drug lab chemist who's using meth. Seems like there's a pretty good chance that person would qualify as a bad actor right. at that point. Right. I double back, check the Inspector General's records report, which is an extensive report, comprehensively details everything they did. All right, so what about Farrakh? She's mentioned in a footnote. 
concerning the criminal charges brought in Amherst. There's nothing in there about Farrakh. And at Hinton. Exactly. At Hinton. Nothing at all. Just that footnote about what you did in Amherst. And and even uh, what what they say in that footnote, which I'm actually looking at right now, uh, is not that she had drug uh, abuse issues, which I think would have raised lots of eyebrows, but they said that merely she removed drugs from the Amherst lab, presumably for her own use, as if they weren't sure yeah. that they had a bunch of papers talking about how frequently she used drugs uh, in their possession, and that Luke was uh, uh, Luke Ryan was desperately trying to get, and they were desperately trying to prevent him from getting it. It, it was the attorney general's office was involved in misconduct. To my understanding, three of those prosecutors are being charged with uh, by the board of bar receivers with that misconduct, and the hearing on that is coming up uh, because they did not disclose to Luke Ryan materials from nearly two years that established that Farak had been using using at work. Right. And if you couple that with what they've been trying to hide from you, as you said at the top of the pod, with all of these, you know, you've got a court order that says you need to um, give us this information. And six years later, was is that what you said? It was six years after you got your initial order from the court? It was, we got an order from, uh, in the Sutton case, we got an order in March of 2019, last year. Okay. It took six more orders. That's right, six more orders. And finally, as of January of last year, January of this year, we were able to get the material. We were trying to prove a negative, trying to prove there was no investigation. Right. And not everyone was interested in letting us prove that. They just didn't want to, just didn't want to help. Right. Despite the court orders by the single justice of the Supreme Judicial Court, by the Superior Court, they just and, didn't. And Jim, can you put a little uh, uh, more uh, meat on this bone? What does it mean? Uh, as a, a lawyer knows what it means when you say it took six orders. What does that actually mean? Meaning, what was going on? What was the back and forth all about? Because you would agree with me that it, to get a party to comply, in theory, should only take one order. Right. So explain to me what the other five were all about. The first order was to the Middlesex DA's office saying, go look at the Inspector General's office and see if they investigated Farrakh. And that was, they were supposed, they were supposed to have done that by May of last year. Uh, they responded in May saying they won't give us their records. The judge made the point in June saying, well, it's not the first time someone won't comply with an order like that. You're supposed to come back and get a motion to compel. So as of June 19 last year, he said, okay, Inspector General's office comply with this order. Didn't happen. Just didn't do it. Did they ghost you? Like, did they say anything or did they just not comply? They... At that point, the DA's office in Middlesex had been ordered to go through the Inspector General's files and find exculpatory evidence. That is evidence that would indicate whether there was investigation of Farrakh. A very limited thing. And they thought, well, you know, we've got a better idea. That's what the court has ordered us to do. We're not going to do that. We're going to go through their file. Actually, we're going to get their file, not go through it, and give the whole thing to McKenna. (laughs) 
<laughs> get the whole thing to council. And it, I, there are some amazing emails from the Middlesex DA's office that say things like, all right, there were 64 or 63 bankers' boxes of material, 140,000 documents. When would you like to go through them? Pick a day, maybe an afternoon. Yeah. What are you doing after it's, tea? Yeah. 140,000. Jesus. Yeah. And the Inspector General had no interest in me going through all the material. I had no interest in doing that. The DA's office was supposed to go through a lot of sensitive material in there. Personnel material, medical, everything. No. The job of the middle 60s office was to go through it. Right. It, it, it gets worse. As of July 15 last year, the, the court said, all right, enough obfuscation and delay to the DA's office and said, you've got a week to get this done. And the next day, they file a pleading, a remarkable pleading in which they say a week isn't enough give us a month and we'll give the defense everything they want uh, all right i agreed it was, it was a joint request because of that the next day the judge said okay well you've got a month uh and uh but you have to start reviewing it right now so they began reviewing right right away just kidding they didn't review anything they went to the singles justice saying, we don't want to give them anything. July 16, they filed a pleading saying, give us a month and we'll give them everything we everything they want. And they turn around and go to the single justice saying, eh, the judge is out of line. We don't want to give them anything. Uh, the single justice looked at this and said, eh, he's not out of line. And you've got to comply. And so they filed a pleading saying, we started our compliance in October because they did after they lost in the single justice session. Single justice and the Superior Court said, okay, compliant by November. They didn't. No, they didn't. As of January, they were saying, well, we can comply by, how about the end of April? And the judge said, no, no. You've got, about, you've got at that point, like a week or so, or there'll be sanctions. And they complied. January 15th. And and to put just a, a little further context, Jim, um, as a as a as a litigator yourself, uh, have you ever been in a situation where you've been on the receiving end of consecutive court orders? And do you have an instinctive um, uh, feel for how how it would have gone if you started going down that road in terms of your ability to be an effective advocate in front of that judge and for your client to get an effective outcome? I mean, meaning, is it? A, are you are you going down a road that there's no coming back from if you thumb your nose repeatedly at court orders? And why is it that it seems like the government doesn't have that same worry? I've never done anything like that. The idea of violating a court order or a series of court orders or or misrepresenting to the court anything like that. Oh, we're going to give them everything at once. Uh, actually, no, we're giving them nothing. Going to go to civil justice. You go through it. <laughs> You do it. I know it was on me, but you know what? You do this, bro. Right. Right. I've, That's I've, unbelievable. I've, I've never, ever disregarded court orders like this. And if, if a defense counsel were to do that, it wouldn't go well for counsel or the client. Right. And, and you but would, they just... But they can do whatever they want. And, and you said you're trying to prove a negative. And so let me, let, let me just try to make this very uh, uh, basic so that people understand. The issue that you were trying to prove 
was that there had been no investigation of Sonia Farrakh. Is that right? That's it. And so the proof of that would be someone writing you a letter saying, you're right. Attorney I, McKenna, you're right. We didn't do an investigation of Ms. Farrakh, which would have then been a problem because there was a very lengthy report written by the OIG implying that there had been a complete investigation. So that, so, so what they were trying to do was prop up the OIG report as defensible on one hand, um, but on the other hand, not, um, uh, well, not send you that letter that would have said we didn't do the investigation, but there, there was nothing, no, no piece of paper for them to turn over suggesting they had done an investigation, right? That it, if they had a, such a piece of paper, they should have just given it to you. That's it. That's it. You're absolutely right. It, would, it was the simplest thing, proving that there was no investigation. The only way we could do that, and to be frank, we're about to go down that same path with respect to the other chemists who should have been investigated. Right. We're going to, over the next in the near term, file motion saying, all right, give us all the documents concerning these other six chemists. A direct in, investigation directed towards them. There's at least one of them who's not mentioned at all in the report by the Inspector General's office. And that report from March of 2014 comprehensively details everything they did. They didn't leave anything out. If they had conducted an investigation of Sonia Farrakh, they would have said, and then we investigated Sonia Farrakh. It's not there. And uh, I don't want to move off this prematurely, but mm -hmm. can we uh, 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 walk back to how you discovered that Farak had been at Hinton? We, back in 2013, had that information. And, and, and was that because of the, do the discovery in your particular case? Yes. Meaning there was a sheet that said chemist Sonia Farak that had a heading that said Hinton Lab, basically. There was a pivot table, a breakdown by the Department of Public Health, and uh, I see. It was by the Department of Health, with Suffolk office and some involvement in there, describing the test results produced at him. That document indicated that Farrakh not only worked there, but she produced vastly more results than Dukin. <laughs> right. Remember the Dukin's red flag about it. she produced so many results. It was a red flag as to misconduct. Well, Farrakh produced more. And by the way, the what she was producing, the, the results she was producing were all for drugs that she was addicted, or at the time we found out later was had a problem with, right? There was a lot of cocaine in there. She was specific, And that was a time when chemists could request what drugs they wanted to test at the Hinton lab. Is that correct? In March of 2014, if 2004, Sonia Farrakh set the indoor record for most drugs, cocaine samples tested at Hinton. Mm. And she later would talk about smoking crack at work in Amherst. Yep. Mm -hmm. so and cooking it too. Right yeah. And, yes. and actually, just to go back in time a little more, because I, I know the answer to this because I learned it from you, but where did Sonia Farrakh work before she was at Hinton? Before Hinton? Um, I mean, excuse me, before she was in the drug lab at Hinton. Where did what was she doing before? She worked there for three years, and she 
I can't emphasize this enough because your question is a great one. Because of her polysubstance intake, she was using during the, we know at various times she's using LSD, meth, heroin, cocaine, pills randomly. Every test she reports, every test she does, every test result she reports is unreliable. Every single one of them. And I'll say that again, just for the emphasis. Every single one of the reports Sonia Farrakh produced while engaging in polysubstance intake was unreliable. To your question, she spends half her time at Hinton testing drugs, the other half testing HIV samples. And every single test she reports results in at Hinton is unreliable, right. including the tens, she reported maybe 20,000 HIV results. And as of August 2015, the Department of Public Health no longer has records as to which tests she conducted. Mm-hmm. So of the 100,000 or so conducted while she was there, they don't know which ones she did. Mm-hmm. So you don't know which 20,000 of those 100,000 are unreliable. Right. So it's and all unreliable then. Right. right. They're, they're all unreliable. Nobody knows. And and I would I would assume that HIV, um, unlike maybe drug testing, uh, you can't tolerate a false negative. Yes, meaning it's something which you're, you're giving yes. mis, you're giving misinformation to somebody who's then going to go on in their life doing things that they probably shouldn't be doing if they received a correct uh, test result. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. And, and I'm, I'm guessing no one has volunteered to do that investigation to see if any results were, were incorrect. The first anyone knew of this, from my perspective, was in September 2015, when the, we'll call it SAD, investigation then being conducted by the Attorney General's office involved putting Sonia Farrakh before the grand jury and asking her questions. She disclosed at that point the seventy-five to 80,000 tests being run per year HIV tests at Hinton and her having worked with five or there were five or six people doing the testing. So Hmm. since she was doing that testing for about 16 months, that breaks down to about 20,000 tests. The attorney general's office then tried to contact all the people involved to let them know the tests were unreliable. Just kidding. (laughs) They filed motions to keep those attorney, those grand jury minutes secret. And it wasn't until... May of the next year that we were able to get them to be made public. So So, literally public health means a lot less to the attorney general's office than does keeping a story under wraps and and making sure that people have the information they want them to have rather than ensuring that their health is number one. I mean, that's just what that says to me. Those people should have been notified in October of 2015. They still haven't been notified. People don't know. And the focus of the grand jury presentation was basically, and this comes across during the questioning by the prosecutors who were involved, basically the narrative they were pushing during that grand jury was, all right, you did math there, but it just kind of made you more alert, right? (laughs) It helped. (laughs) Well, yeah. I mean, so everyone should be on math. Yeah. Yeah. It it, it was to that point. Well, it It was, yeah. (laughs) We uh, on this um, podcast, we uh, Jamie and I pause periodically to to uh, m- marvel at irony, 
And it's, it's, uh, it's nice to know that sometimes the government thinks that drugs are a good thing. Right. If, if it's involved so, in any kind of narrative. If the right person takes drugs, they're okay. Yeah. But for other people, right, the, the, the grad student who needs to pull an all-nighter, that person can't use a stimulant. But a, a, a drug lab employee paid by taxpayer funds, that's okay. Who's testing the illegal drugs confiscated? So, so this is this is the loop that that's fun. You're a you know you're, you're a person that's trying to get through the night, and you're taking meth to get through your second shift. You get busted on the drive back by the cops who take your meth. They give it to Sonia Farak. She does your meth to test all of this ridiculous backlog that they have there. And, you know, she does the meth in the lab that's testing the drugs to put the original person away in jail. That's the cycle, correct? And and it's okay if she does it in the lab while testing the drugs to put someone in jail, but outside the lab, that's a no-no, and you're going to jail for a long time. It was just badness all around. Right. And the, the fact that they wouldn't, notify people of this what they were trying to as of the spring of 2017 the attorney general's office is still filing documents saying ah oh, come on wasn't that bad and and <laughs> uh, uh jim do you know the um uh the outcome the career outcome uh so we know that uh annie dukin and, and sonia farak spent time in prison um although you could argue um that they maybe spent uh, uh, less time than the uh, the 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 wrongful uh, periods of incarceration that they may have inflicted on others. Um, in t- if you combine those, but uh, what about the other? Uh, let's say the um, of the uh, of the other chemists that were part of this recent disclosure. Um, I know one is retired, but what about where are the others? Did they? Did, do you know? Did they stay on? Did they get? transferred over to the state police uh, drug lab or did they get scattered to the four winds? Do you know? To my understanding, two of them have stayed on and are still there at what was the Hinton lab. I'm not sure they still call that Hinton. Three of them moved to the state police lab, which frankly will present questions about the integrity of evidence at the state police lab. So the infection has spread to that. Mm-hmm. Yes. And we, um, this is something that we've talked about offline and, and we can go into because uh, we'll do another podcast. But we have evidence from the attorney general's office stating that um, they found that state police employees gave knowing false testimony as for drug classification on the stand along with Hinton and Amherst's uh, chemists, all three labs gave false testimony about drug classifications for drug to send people to jail for possession of drugs they knew weren't illegal in mass. They weren't scheduled. This is the cl- uh, class E. This is the class E issue. issue if, if, you've, if you're familiar with that. It was the policy of the lab to misclassify them. Yes. There's an amazing email from April 2011. An email sent from Hinton Dukin had hidden to Farak and Amherst, in which they're coordinating, coordinating yes. what the labs are going to do about this class, this thing called BZP, which is not illegal, which was then not illegal in Massachusetts, but illegal federally. It's an so ecstasy do? knockoff, right? Yeah. Yep. It's, it's, it's like ecstasy or something. It's, what do you do with, with this stuff? How do you classify it if it's brought, let's call it a classy substance, an illegal classy substance. They knew it was not an illegal class E substance. My understanding is there were hundreds of cases where that was reported. Right. 
and that was misclassified through it wasn't just Dukin and they, they were wanting they wanted to get their story straight uh, I believe Sonia said I know that we've been calling this classy we being Amherst what do you guys call it right. and they, they both admitted in the emails that they know it's not illegal in mass, but we've been calling it classy on the stand. Right. And every chemist who knowingly submitted a certification that this is an illegal, illegal classy substance, and knowing that was not the case, everyone violated the law. And yes. every criminal charge brought as a result was a travesty. And no one, to your knowledge, has been charged with giving false testimony in, in that regard and conspiring to give false testimony, correct? Not a person. Not a person. And uh, what's interesting is that the OIG did another report, uh, at least related to Hinton, and I will say limited to Hinton because, I, again, it's another report that doesn't mention Sonia Farrakh in the body. Um, and, and, and this time she doesn't even get a footnote. Um, <clears throat> but it's the supplemental report of 2016, and they have a section on BZP. Right. And what's fascinating is that email which would have been the, uh, I think, would have, um, to any investigator, that would have been one that you spend some time with, right? You read it, you probably um, ponder it, and then you, you sit in front of your computer and you write a, a paragraph talking about that email because you now have the lone bad actors, according to an earlier OIG report, emailing uh, the Miss Footnote from that same report, <laughs> talking about, uh, misclassifying drugs as as illegal uh, via the Class E loophole that they thought they had discovered. That is not that communication is not mentioned in the supplemental report. And the supplemental report, if anything, makes it seem like the only discussion was internal to Hinton. Uh, I don't even think that email is referenced euphemistically as one chemist emailed another. It's not mentioned at all. As, as maybe it, I think I'm it's in there. It. I, I think it's in there, but I I would have to read. We'd have to, we'd but, have to look. But I think that they say internal inquiry. Um, and so what's interesting is why was that not discussed in the supplemental report? And the ramifications I'm a, too. I'm a former prosecutor, and when I if reading that email, my first thought was, okay, how many people are about to get charged? Yeah, Everyone involved in the conspiracy to do this is subject to being charged with that. How big is the net? You know, like, what have you got? Right. Because that's the whole lab. And then Peter Priero, or or other chemists that were um, in the lab, also had questions about that, and it went all the way up to the person who is in charge of the lab. And she said to go to the uh, district attorneys to get clarification. Have you seen that email, Jim? I've not seen that email. Okay. I've seen the email between the two chemists, the, the two who, Farrakh and Duke, who coordinated their policies. Right. Which is just outrageous. <laughs> Think about that. That's, in effect, I'm sorry, Elias, I'll, I'll, that's, in effect, chemists writing laws on the fly, right? And skipping the legislature. Yeah, skipping the legislature, knowingly bringing false criminal charges, yeah. essentially. Right. And, and what's interesting is the, um, uh, Jamie mentioned that, uh, it w- that this was taken a, and to, uh, to Ms. Nassif, uh, yeah. who um, uh, in that email, uh, I, I believe, concludes it with leave it up to prosecutors. Correct. That part of her advice is omitted from the OIG report. Instead, what it says is just simply 
issue a certificate without saying that it's class E. And so here's a question just off the off the, the, the trot for you, Jim. Have you ever seen a certificate from any state drug lab that certifies something that's not illegal? Have you seen a, this is peanut butter, a, 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 a seized substance, I should just limit it. So a seized substance on the street, a powder, a liquid, a leafy substance. Have you ever seen it certified as oregano or uh, uh, baking powder? Or cashew, or something along those yes. lines. I, I have not. Okay. I, I've, so I've why not. would why would you say certify something, but just leave off the class E part? And then, of course, we know that that didn't happen. They continued to right. churn out certificates that said class E. Yep. Um, but the email from Ms. Nassif seems to then put the ball in the prosecution court. And I have not seen. And I'm, I'll ask you, Jim. Have you? Are you aware of any inquiry into whether prosecutors? Uh, 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 had any hand in this decision? I mean, first of all, isn't a prosecutor charged with knowledge of the law? Yes. Okay. So you would you before you prosecute someone for BZP, don't you have to look it up in the in the big book of laws to see is this illegal? Right. And that right. It, that doesn't appear to have happened. Right. Um, and the presumption I have on that is they they deferred to the lab. Yeah, saying, well, if this is now classified as Class E, illegal substance, all right. The well, defense counsel bears some burden on that too, because if someone's, you <laughs> yes. should check. You should know. You should know. You should yeah. know. Right. What is this stuff? It, and there clearly it, there was a lot of ball dropping, and I, I think Luke Ryan put it well when when he called this a confidence scheme because it truly, truly was. I mean, it's it took some of the pillars of what mass incarceration is all about: overburdening. Oh, overburdened courts, overworked people, and really just led a confidence scheme through there saying, oh yeah, this is illegal, this tested is this. And people like either didn't have the time or who, who knows, it's hard to speculate, but you're right, there's there's blame to go all around. Right. Now, um, do you guys remember, I've talked to you, Elias, about this, Jim, I'm, I can't remember if I talked to you about this or not. Do you remember in the OIG's report, um, what they said, Annie. What they determined Annie Dukin's motive to be for why she did all this, why she was the lone bad actor and turned negatives to positives, and and did everything she did. They claimed she did. I think that was part of the narrative, which, to my understanding, originated with her lawyer, was that she wanted to be Superwoman. That was the idea to, to produce a vast. I don't buy it. Yeah, I don't buy it at all. I, in, in the Netflix special, they at one point uh, dramatically have Sonia Farrakh taking a, a eyedropper full of meth and crossing the line. Yeah. Using the meth. It's, they do, it's a great TV show from that perspective. Right. But it's false. Yeah, it's, that's when not true. When she's using this meth at Amherst, she'd already used meth and heroin and cocaine. At the, uh, there was no line being crossed. Yeah. That's from her testimony in grand jury. Right. Which right. was something the Attorney General's office believed basically everything she said. They believed the nonsense she said about how she Googled meth and said, well, you know, if at some point I'm going to become addicted to a drug, it's going to be this. Are you kidding me? Well, there's you a Google meth. There's a see pictures of meth mouth and it's awfulness. Yeah. Right. So the framing of the issue, as I understand it was, well, Ms. Farrakh, uh, was uh, worried about the expensive uh, real estate market when she was in the east part of the state. And so she had to move out west where real estate was cheaper. Um, 
Of course, that glosses over the fact that Annie Dukin lived in, uh, I believe, Franklin, which just uh, recently was announced as one of the 10 least expensive towns to live in in Massachusetts. So you could find real estate if you were so motivated. She could have been roomies with Miss Dukin. Um, And that she moved to Amherst for that reason. And what's not explored and and amazingly not investigated is, well, what if the reason she went from HIV testing to drug lab testing was to get closer to drugs? And what if the reason she went from Boston to Amherst was because Boston had a large bureaucracy over you that was probably keeping tabs on you, whereas apparently in Amherst, you sort of could be off on your own and apparently no one noticed or cared. And so that, that seems to me to be, if we're going to speculate about motives, mm-hmm. why is that not the first motive that we at least try to rule out? Was, was all of this for purposes of drugs? Makes great sense. Yep. And again, it is speculation, but it makes great sense. So, oh, go ahead, Jim. I'm sorry. When they worked together, uh, Dukin and Tarak and a third chemist, the three of them produced, at Hinton, they produced, the three of them produced 52% of the results at the lab. <laughs> the people reporting results, the three of these people produced 52%. They're flying through numbers. Again, Farak owns the record for the most results ever of cocaine in a month at Hinton, despite the fact that Dukin's numbers were through the roof because of her, her practices. When she gets to Amherst, she's still moving at that speed. They've got a pretty big backlog at Amherst. And they tell her to slow down. <laughs> oh, we're still in business because of this backlog. Right. You slow down. You get rid of this backlog. And there have been several attempts to shut down the Amherst lab. But they had to stay in business because of the backlog. So there's that element too. (laughs) They were intentionally having a backlog. And meanwhile, what backlog means is a lot of people were sitting in jail for drugs that weren't even tested yet. We talk about these things like they're drugs and they're independent. Everything attached to these drugs is a human being. So there's human beings sitting in jail cells because an Amherst lab didn't want to be shut down because they were too efficient in getting their drugs tested, i.e. justice done or, you know, any kind of trial done. Because, you know, in, in Massachusetts, if you can't afford bail, you're sitting in jail. So, I mean, that that to me is so callous and so just off the charts. But that, you're, to your point, Jim, that's exactly what was going on. Now, um, back to what I was saying about motive. So, Jim, that was the official line. It, it wasn't, it seemed to take a life of its own, the whole she was rushing to please people story. The official line from the OIG report is they could not determine Dukin's motive. This is, again, another of their uh, famous footnotes. But what they did say was that we couldn't determine her motive, but her we did determine that her motive was not to help um, attorneys, or excuse me, uh, prosecutors win cases. That's what they said. And they said that they were aware of emails that made it look like Dukin was trying to appease prosecutors and they were very thankful of her doing that. That's literally what the report says. And I have an email that I sent to the OIG and asked for comment and believe it or not, did not hear back on where, where Dukin said, I want to lock this guy up and throw away the keys. She said that twice. 
twice. Which is the is the scientists who we're turning to to test these drug drugs objectively. These right. things objectively are right. these drugs. We turn to you, your disinterested, dispassionate mm-hmm. scientist. Right. Yep. yep, that's what the attorney general told the Supreme Court. And but on the motive, the the that email that doesn't seem to get prominence um, anywhere, uh, uh, the Ms. Dukin to Ms. Farak exchange on BZP. The interesting thing about that exchange is that it refutes both motivations that are the official cover story. That if Ms. Dukin is a is rushing and perennially rushing and therefore cutting corners, making mistakes. Why is she even sitting at a computer writing an email asking sort of esoteric legal questions right. and, then, and then erring on the side of let's violate people, continue to violate people's rights by certifying something as classy that we know isn't, yeah. uh, just so that we're all, what, I, I forget what the phrase is, on the same page, I think was the, the, right. the agreement. Yeah. And, and meanwhile, you have Ms. Farak who... If it's not something that can be um, um, snorted or uh, inhaled, um, why is she uh, wasting time with it? What, so she gained nothing from that email exchange other than to also perpetuate the violation of people's rights. And so you have an interesting email exchange where the two of them ignore law and notions of justice, but it, doesn't, it can't be explained by the officially accepted version of motivation. Right. Exactly. And so exactly. that would have prompted a reopening uh, I would think of why they did this. If there were an intellectually honest investigation, sure. Well, they and would if have said, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry, Jim. Why? Why? If Dukin is producing vast numbers because she wants to please, or sorry, because she wants to be Superwoman, why is Frog producing more? Right. Right. And why are they taking the time to coordinate a BS story that puts them both at risk of prosecution if they get caught? Like, clearly, they didn't think that that was even going to be an option because they were doing it for the people who would be prosecuting them to help them. And to be clear, the, 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 the information that, Jim, you have helped um, uh, uncover uh, suggests that it's actually not just Farak who exceeded Dukin, um, but, and I want to make sure we're not burying the lead here, but on, uh, depending on what period of time was selected, there were at least, uh, 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 counting Farak, seven other chemists who from time to time exceeded Dukin's output. Or at least produced comparable. Or, or comparable, yes. Which, according to the consultant, not according to me, but according to the Inspector General's consultant, was enough to trigger investigation. It, was, it, would, it, it would classify as a red flag. Exactly. And that's, are these? and that's across two labs, too. That was seven, seven chemists... Um, within two labs, and both meaning Hinton number, and Amherst. Yeah, both meaning Hinton and Amherst. Yeah. My number is nine for the number of chemists who needed investigation. Farak, Dukin, and seven more, because uh, there's another chemist. The I mentioned three chemists producing fifty-two percent of the results. That chemist, the third one, who led the lab in terms of productivity in two thousand three. And was second only to Dukin in two thousand four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine. Mm-hmm. If you're saying high productivity numbers are the red flag, well, why aren't you looking at number two? Right, who's just behind Dukin in yeah. I think two thousand six, almost exceeded her. Why not take a look? And right. and also another chemist. Something that Dukin was charged with was falsifying her credentials, her academic credentials on the stand, and another chemist involved also was fired for doing that exact same thing. Is that correct? 
I the report, especially those report, references that. Yes, and uh, the, the false class, uh, false academic credentials by one of the chemists. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> to get back to something you mentioned early on, uh, the governor asking for the inspector general to step in. If I could step that back just a little bit further, mm-hmm. in about July of 2012, the attorney general's office began investigating Dugan. The uh, about July. In obviously that was the criminal division. In August of 2012, the managing attorney from the criminal division is made the inspector general. <laughs> in October 2012, um, lawyers from the ACLU and defense bar write to the governor saying, you know, I'm not sure the attorney general should be doing this because they point out the conflict. If yeah. you're the attorney general and you're doing a great job tracking down the problem at the lab, you're undermining lots of convictions. So they made the point that it shouldn't be the attorney general. So the governor turned to someone completely independent of the attorney general, the inspector general, who hadn't worked with the attorney general in, what, weeks, a couple months? <laughs> and who had in Norfolk County managing, before that, right? Managing attorney of the, of the criminal division at about the time they're investigating Duke. So this was hardly the most independent person you could find. Right. And then we have the, the, the investigation that, you know, I got to tell you, the investigation itself, I'm not sure was flawed. It was the report. Mm-hmm. The investigation detailed all the problems with the training and the supervision and all this stuff. Yep. yep. At Hinton, and then said Duke and so bad actor. Yeah. Wait a minute. That's not connected to your investigation. Right. right. It's just tacked on there. It is. That's the. They, they had a press release that came out emphasizing that, which everyone relied upon. Right. The DA's office in Middlesex has filed pleading saying, "Well, so bad actor. That conclusion means they did an assessment as to whether there were other bad actors." Well, it suggests that. But it didn't happen. Right. And, and there's a fundamental problem uh, that I was struck with the first time I read the OIG report, which is that you can't conclude in the same document that there was a sole bad actor and that a lab had a policy of not turning over exculpatory evidence. Because everybody was subject to that policy. And that means every chemist was potentially committing perjury. And so in the case of my client... Annie Dukin testified, but so did another chemist. And there was no, not, neither of them volunteered that there had been earlier attempts to test the sample that came back negative. And so you have a situation where uh, uh, I would say perjury makes you a, soul, a, a bad actor. Um, agreeing to uh, or conspiring to withhold um, uh, 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 exculpatory evidence makes you a bad actor. And interestingly, I think one of the grand jurors figured that out during the grand jury uh, session. And uh, one of the uh, attorney general attorneys, who's now under uh, 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 an inquiry from the BBO, uh, would intervene to shift the focus of the questions from the grand jurors a little bit uh, in order to make sure that, that they didn't figure out what the, the, um, what the nature of the misconduct was. 
The misconduct was that they would do test results that would not be reported. And one of the grand jurors asked, well, why aren't you reporting those results? And, and that line of questioning got kind of shunted and, and concealed. Uh, and, and I think that's the issue here, that ultimately what this has to do with, at the end of the day, is good or bad, the be even the best lab is going to produce negative results. And even the worst lab is going to have its mistakes become exculpatory evidence. So all labs are in possession of exculpatory evidence. Uh, either negative samples or I made a mistake or both. Any lab that agree, that embarks down the road of I'm not going to turn this information over is uh, any anyone who's involved in that uh, that approach is a bad actor, right? And there's no. It's yeah, so, your point earlier about the BZP. Everyone involved in that whole debacle was a bad actor, right? Every one of them, right? Whoever reported, knowingly reported a. This is a, a illegal class E substance, knowing it was not illegal. Yep. That's committing Each a crime. Qualify. That's Tommy Wiseau level bad actor. <laughs> Sorry, that's that's a pop culture. That's a pop reference. culture reference that probably I'm only going to get, but oh, I got it too. <laughs> okay. I got it too. <laughs> okay, Randy got it too. Yeah. Good. Okay. Oh, hi, bad actor. <laughs> yeah, but. But uh, but for real, it, I think what this also comes down to is just the OIG seems to be monopolizing the term bad actor and what they consider to be a bad actor. They can, they can say bad actor and then just kind of put, stick their fingers in their ears and say no, 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 because the next paragraph when they say that Dukin was the lone bad actor, Jim, to your point about the whole report being they didn't have training, their testing methods were, bull, were bullshit, they, you know, they, they didn't run proper procedures, you know, like, and then they come out with Andy Dukin was the lone bad actor, and then in the next paragraph they say, "Oh, the the root cause of this was the um, lack of supervision in the lab." That was the next paragraph they said that uh, the supervisors it was a failure of supervisors. So it's like, well, does that count as a bad actor? Like, if if the, if the root cause is that the supervisors failed to catch this, how is that not a bad action? Yeah, and think of the logical jump. They, they took not enough funding, not enough training. Yeah. They investigated lack of funding, lack of training, lack of protocols, lack of procedures, and they jumped to console a bad actor. Yeah. Wait, you can investigate the inadequate training all day long, and that's not going to lead you to Dukin is a sole bad actor. It just doesn't fit. No. Right. Honestly, to be very frank, when we read the report, or I read the report back in March 2014, you go right to this, the primary conclusion sole bad actor. All right. That's it. Yep. You don't break it down saying this re this investigation was about inadequate training yeah. inadequate funding yep how they, you don't you just say okay well there it is and it sat until Luke Ryan got the materials showing that she used method the prior lab right that made that belied their whole bad actor thing and that was 5 years ago and we've been fighting it since and they haven't admitted it still they're still lone bad actor, right? They're still on that fence. They, in September last year, filed a pleading with the single justice during the, the time we were there, which the single justice interpreted as the inspector general distancing itself from the representation. You quoted a minute ago, a few minutes ago, that investigated the chemists. Well, we conducted a high-level investigation of the lab. 
we didn't actually investigate individual, individual chemists. Right. The essence of what they told the single justice. Uh, right. Was completely inconsistent with what they said. <laughs> we investigated individual chemists to see if there was misconduct or malfeasance. Right. And now they're saying what they were forced to say. And, no, we didn't really do that. And I, I would say another fact hiding in plain sight is, uh, and it's it's interesting how the pronouns that were used in the first OIG report disappeared in the, or the names rather, disappeared in the supplemental. So in the first report, people who did things had their name um, appended to that uh, uh, narrative. In the supplemental, they went through all the people who were factually innocent, who had been convicted based on uh, false reporting by the lab. And they just said, a chemist certified, a chemist certified, a chemist certified. What's interesting is if you unmask those references, it wouldn't have been Miss Dukin certified, Miss Dukin certified, Miss Dukin certified. It would be other chemists. In fact, I believe a majority of the false certifications came from people not named Andy Dukin. And so why did the OIG report not include the names of the people? That's a great question. And let me bring us back to... January 20, 2013. You remember that day. It was a Sunday. Uh, day after Farrakh's arrested and the Attorney General and the Colonel of the State Police give a press briefing in which they say essentially, well, that was nothing. And we caught it at the beginning. Right. Governor repeats that two days later saying, well, thank goodness no one's... The Attorney General said the day after Farrakh's arrested, no one's rights were violated. Right. Well, the only thing you could know 24 hours after Frox arrested is you don't know whether anyone's rights were violated. Yeah. You don't know what she did. You know the extent. You can't say, as a colonel of the state police said, this was nothing. Right. And the attorney general has a, um, I, you know, I don't know if people actually understand. Uh, it's, an, it's an elected position. Right. And Which I ran back in 2010. Full disclosure, no, I, I, I lost that race back in 2010. And uh, from that perspective, I have had no concerns about burning bridges in this matter. Right. Because they have no bridges. So it all but, kind of works out well. But I'm, I'm, I'm sure that what you were then in running, you were aware that you're not simply, you know, it's not a typical attorney role, right? A typical attorney represents a client and only that client. And zealously represents that client within the limits of what's considered ethical, right? And so, meaning you got to you you have you're expected to push, but an attorney general does not represent a single interest to the to the hilt. It represents, I think, a number of interests, some of which are conflicting. But one of the interests is the people, the people, the residents of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, the public. Uh, they the the. the public notions of, of decency and justice. If you are uh, absconding with trust funds, the person who's responsible for investigating is the attorney general. And so... Only... Please. So, so how, how did this get so screwed up that somehow the attorney general is not looking at this as, I just want to know who's at fault here so we can tie this off? Why? Why was it? Why was the? Why was there an attempt to always minimize the wrongdoing? Why was this not an expansive investigation uh, for the benefit of the public? Um, the, the three quick things. One being, 
to your point about there being no one overriding interest, there would be one justice. They're supposed to follow justice to the end, not what's expedient. You don't minimize this so that you can benefit politically when you're running against Steve Grossman. Right. You don't, you're not supposed to be doing that. Um, to one of the tragedies here, in a way, is that the prosecutors from the Attorney General's office who may lose their license to practice law are or were at one point just regular prosecutors doing their job. As of April 5, 2013, and in Kaczmarek, one of the prosecutors who's in big trouble on this before the BBO sent an email saying, I'd like to go look at the samples tested by Farrakh. Look at them. Farrakh's taking out cocaine, replacing with soap or wax or something. Kaczmarek's idea, and it's a good one, and this is what you do if you're a good prosecutor, is to look at the samples and say, all right, well, this obviously has two things in it. One is crack or cocaine, and the other is wax. A good idea. We had the same idea in, in where the next year. And that's April 5, 2013. She's still prosecuting this. She had a prosecution memo saying, let's indict her. And then she'll tell us what she did. Makes sense. Yep. Right. By mid-April, she's filing an affidavit saying, this is over. Investigation's done. There was a directive issued within the Attorney General's office that shut down the investigation in 2013. Right. And we know of this because in 2015, the new Attorney General brought in uh, a retired judge to do what you suggested a moment ago. Find out why this happened. And what followed was the most functionally corrupt investigation I have ever seen. Judge Peter Vellis retained two state police captains to do the investigation. In 2015, we brought allegations saying misconduct. I filed a motion in the Ware case, May of 2015, saying the assistant prosecutors from the Attorney General's office committed misconduct of such magnitude that the rarely, if ever used, remedy of presumed prejudice should apply. Usually, to, to get your case dismissed based on government misconduct, you've got to prove prejudice. If the misconduct is so bad, uh, you can, if you can show that misconduct was so bad, you don't have to show prejudice. It's presumed. I argued that in May of 2015. In June 2017, Judge Richard Carey out in Springfield dismissed seven convictions on that basis, including some from the Ware case, saying the misconduct by the Attorney General's office was so bad we're going to use presumed prejudice because it was that bad. In October 2018, the SJC ordered the dismissal of thousands more because of that misconduct. So the misconduct is pretty obvious, except to those two state police captains. They conducted the investigation and said, as Luke Ryan put it in that Netflix special, the only one who did anything wrong was Luke Ryan. They couldn't find any. How do you miss... It's, it's like going to the beach and missing the Atlantic Ocean. Right, right. It was obvious to everyone except the investigators who supposedly were trying to find this, this misconduct. 
And they had access to all the materials. They had access to everyone to interview. They they could do anything and everything they wanted. They could look into anything they wanted. And people outside who had limited access to just a box of materials are found a huge egregious uh, misstep that was pretty much intentional. So it's. I mean, I guess what this comes down to is why do they keep fighting it? And I mean, my best guess is that this comes down to the integrity of the entire criminal justice system in Massachusetts, and or at least that's what they think, um, and that they're protecting that integrity to the death. That these basically these chemists were rigging evidence to convict people for prosecutors, and they do they will never admit that. They will never ever admit that, and that's what I think. What do you What do you think? Why do they keep uh, hiding and fighting? We had some great prosecutors here. I worked in the Suffolk DA's office. I worked in the Worcester DA's office. Worcester's full of great prosecutors, people with all the integrity in the world, and which is maybe why they're not involved in this at all. Right. And we've got people who have limited ability and limited interests in finding the truth, and that's and we've got people who don't want the truth revealed there's there's a bizarre turn of events in july of 2014 which made no sense to anyone at the time july 2nd 2014 the where case we get direct appellate review uh, we tried to get discovery about what farak was up to and where they denied it at the superior court level the sjc said okay we'll hear it that's july 2nd i think it's july 7th the attorney general attacks the governor saying when i'm governor she, she was running for governor at the time when i'm governor there'll be no any tukins <laughs> wait what <laughs> at, at, at that moment the attorney general's office was hiding exculpatory evidence that luke ryan would track down later that year right and it just made no sense to anyone that what's this about this was the middle of a primary i'm guessing and speculating is not something I like to do about this because I actually talk about things I know. Uh, in the story in the Globe, it talks about this. They reference Steve Grossman, the primary opponent of the Attorney General. Maybe the motivation was to not have Farrakh come out, so mm-hmm. it wouldn't be used against the Attorney General to show that the, the whole system's a mess, right. or there's another chemist. Because there's it's the roach theory. If you walk into your kitchen and you see a roach and you kill it, it was a bug. You see a second one, it's an infestation. Right, right. And in the case of Mr. Ware, I think, um, I I may have this wrong, uh, but uh, someone listening may wonder, well, what's the big deal if the truth eventually comes out? Um, But there is a very big, time is a very big cost in this. And with respect to Mr. Ware, did he, uh, what was the the impact on him on the delay? He had convictions that sat for years. And... Eventually, some of them were dismissed because of the misconduct by the attorney general's office. And uh, did he file a did, did he file a motion, or did you file for him a motion for uh, a, to dismiss while he was still incarcerated? Yes. And was yes. that was that motion initially denied? Yep. Uh, it was. It was the motion for discovery was initially denied. Okay. And the well, and so the motion for discovery to get the information that you later got that later dismissed his conviction or dismissed the case, excuse me. Um, 
was denied earlier based on basically the same fact pattern. It was heard by Judge Kinder in the spring of 2014, maybe February 2014. At that time, the AG's office is still hiding the evidence that they gave to Luke Ryan later. Uh, we're, we're saying that there was no investigation. And because there seemed to have been no investigation of Farrakh. And they're fighting about that. We're, we're, we asked for leave to do what Kazmarek had tried to do. We didn't know it at the time. We asked for leave to go through about the same number of samples and look at them to see whether or not there were obviously samples that contain now wax and cocaine. And we asked for retesting because um, one of the most one of the state troopers with the most integrity, to my understanding, uh, James Conley, a major James Conley, had tr- suggested that right off the bat. Uh, January 2013, Kazmarek sends an email saying, I think this is just the tip of the iceberg. Conley says, let's retest 1,500 samples. They're both right. Yep. Should, we, should we do retesting? And you sh- this was the tip of the iceberg. They had four cases, basically, she tampered with. He was never charged with anything except concerning those four. <laughs> the retesting never happened. Right. The um, it would have been sensible to do. It was never done. And what? So what, what? One consequence was people. Many people were in prison. Right. While this was, while the lawyers are fighting uh, to to either to conceal or to reveal, but actual people were sp- doing actual time. Absolutely yes. In uh, the, I think November 2000 and maybe October 2014, Luke Ryan gets these materials from, eventually gets them from the Attorney General's office. By this point, Kazmarek has left. Whatever is going on, they give these to Luke Ryan then. Within a few months, he's got her prior records that show the use of meth before. She, he obtains also the, the records from her trunk, which show that she was using at work. Um, <laughs> Which she was using her work. Yeah. Let's also say that. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> and it's in the trunk of her car when she's arrested in January 2013. And these are diary notes she put together in December 2011. Indicting herself. How do you, it's uh, over a year later. Honestly, if Luke Ryan hadn't tracked that down, this would have gotten nowhere. What They shut down this whole thing. It would have worked. If... Sonia Farrakh had not had in the trunk in 2013 records from 2011 none of this would have happened mm. all of the convictions which, are going, which have gone away would still be in effect my, my point in this is if they're doing a real investigation you track this down as a prosecutor it's right. Luke Ryan doing this in 2014 it's the prosecution the Attorney General's office doing this in 2013 right. not shutting down the investigation but telling people in the fall of 2013, this person was doing drugs the whole time. Yeah. And she's at work. And, and this is 2013. They should be saying, what's the remedy here? Mm-hmm. Right. Oh, they hide this stuff. And I didn't get a chance to offer my uh, speculation on why this may have been uh, um, uh, fought uh, tooth and nail uh, and minimized. Uh, you know, I, I was taught a long time ago that rule one in any investigation is follow the money. And uh, w- would you agree with this statement, Jim, that uh, there is money to be had on the government side 
from a war on drugs? Yes, absolutely, yes. Um, There's uh, the war on drugs, which has as part of its structure the idea that you turn to scientists to figure out what this stuff is. You defer to them. You just, you just do, as a prosecutor or defense counsel, you're not going to say, well, did this chemist get it right? No, that's one of, the, one of the foundations of what's going on in the courtroom. And this matter shows that foundation is rotten. Right. And what else does it infect? That's where my brain always goes. If they're lying about this, and this is a total nonsensical you know, science, it, there's zero science involved. What other of their science practices and their witnesses are being fudged? just to, to get them to the end. It's about aggressive prosecution at the end of the day. There's some great prosecutors in this state. Yep. And they have, there was one, Zach Hillman, I'm not sure he's still a prosecutor. At one point, he told the appeals court about a problem with one of his cases, lost a conviction, which is the right thing for him, him to have done. And there are a bunch of other prosecutors in our state who do the same type thing. Right. And there are those prosecutors who just won't. Yeah. Just won't. Just want the uh, end end result. Yeah. But it comes down to integrity for sure. Which brings us to the end result and where we're going with this now. In April of this year, Judge Prosciutti in Middlesex found that because of the failure to investigate what Farrakh did in Boston, justice was not done in the Sutton case. I mentioned she reported 9,135 results in, in Boston at the Hidden Lab. The same principle applies in every one of them. So we're looking at thousands of cases that are going to go going to go away based upon the precedent set by Jez Rashuti in April of this year. At a minimum, the convictions following those 9,000 reported results are gone. Right. And then we're talking about the 89,000 results reported by those seven chemists total. That includes the 9,000 from Farak. The same argument applies. We're going to battle, I expect, to get the prosecution to conceive that there was no investigation of seven. It took a year and a half in Sutton. It'll take who knows how long to get this happening now. And once we get to that point, the same argument that applies about lack of justice not being done may apply to those 89,000. But wait, there's more. You've got Nine chemists at the lab who should have been investigated, and two of them were. Um, what's that say about the lab generally? Right, right. Sure. Now, if something approaching the majority of the chemists in the lab should have been investigated, and they weren't, does that mean everything goes away? Everything at Hinton? Yeah, that's the only solution. And they refuse to accept or, or face it. But that is, if you're doing a true scientific investigation and there's this much contamination, you have to just cut it all off and say, you know what, it's not worth fighting tooth and nail to try to contain this still. It, it, everything is infected and everything must go. Per their report as well, right? No training, no lack of scientific standards. Everyone on in the lab was saying that they followed Swig drug when they knowingly did not. They were saying that on the stand. So all of that stuff combined with now this evidence of, I'd say the major, a lot of the chemists at that lab needing investigation, that that makes a case for everything must go. 
and that's that is the final solution. But they will refuse to Which accept. Will undo the war on drugs in Boston? Yes, and that's the whole point. And. It, and, the knee-jerk reaction is, that, oh, well, this seems like it's very disruptive and, and th- this has been dragging on for years, but this all could have been done uh, as part of a comprehensive OIG report in 2014 and as part of the procedures that uh, Commonwealth v. Scott um, uh, pursued uh, in, at that time and in the years after. So th- this, is, this all could have been done back when we did everything the first time, Right. If they had integrity when they're doing the investigation and they're disclosing these materials found in Frock's car, by the end of 2013, what she was up to would have been obvious. And by 2014, the remedy would be then discussed. Right. Didn't happen. In fact, what they told the court, Judge Kinder, there's an email sent by Kazmarek in late 2014, about September, in which she's emailing. I think four other assistant prosecutors in Middlesex, but whether to have a trooper testify before just Kinder, just Kinder's conducting an investigation, trying to find the truth. And at the end of the email, Kazmarek, the prosecutor of Farak says, I'm pretty confident, something to the effect of, I'm pretty confident this trooper will not be helped, will be unhelpful to the judge in what he's trying to do. So maybe just let them testify. The intention of those prosecutors from the attorney general's office was to be unhelpful to the judge finding the, tr- the truth. Two of them still work there. And uh, I think two of them are now being charged, two other ones are being charged with um, misconduct. But not obstruction? Video. I mean, aren't they obstructing? It's- You're sending an email within the office. It's a public record saying, let's be unhelpful. Search for the truth. That's where they were by the fall of October, but by the fall of 2013, by September 2013. Uh, it's boggling. It right? is. It, it's, it's, I mean, you know, a lot of it goes back to, to I, I love the, all the president's men. I like the, love the book and the movie, et cetera. And uh, at one point, Mark Felt Deep Throat tells Bob Woodward in the garage where they would meet to uh, give information. Uh, talking about the Watergate burglars, these weren't really bright guys and things got out of hand. And that, that I think applies over to this, especially. It, I mean, I'm not, you know, casting dispersions, but it's it just, if they're making these kind of statements in public record in things that you can get obtained in public records, then that's not a bright move. And they're sending emails back and forth doing things that, no one should do. Right. You're sending an email to other prosecutors in the attorney general's office, which is sending a picture of Rock's lawyer, and you're mocking her? Right. And well, you're, you're in, yeah. you're, another one refers to her as a gym teacher? And, and the, the comments about Luke Ryan, about not liking him, which have no relevance. I mean, I'm sure lawyers do that all the time, uh, but those have no relevance to uh, your official communications, whether you like the lawyer or not. Um, in fact, if you don't like the lawyer, it's probably because that lawyer is doing something right. Um, <laughs> exactly. And, and th- there's an Ann Kazmarek email where I believe somebody no- notes, uh, uh, one of the state troopers, I believe, notes a discrepancy in pill counts. And 
uh, I think for OxyContin, uh, which you know raised additional issues, obviously. But rather than saying, "Oh, that's a great idea, go investigate that," she said, "Well, don't make this bigger than it has to be." Maybe she was using them for her back or something. Right. Um, uh, which again, I don't that I, that uh, to me um, suggests a, a, a troubling blind spot in terms of what your role truly is if you work for the attorney general's office. And to refer to Luke as a turkey or any of the other names they called him in right. public records, and to send the emails back and forth as they did establishes that they had no expectation that anyone was, was ever going to read the emails, and they said everything mm-hmm. back and forth on email. Right. When we got the emails from the attorney general's office, uh, they selected some out, thousands out, and gave them to us pursuant to discovery. Guess how many concerned the directive that shut down the investigation in 2013? Zero. Zero. Major policy directive whereby they shut down the investigation. They'll talk about the physical appearance of defense counsel. They'll talk about everything. Right. They'll call names, but this thing, this directive, which is referenced in the uh, report of Judge Vellis, the only thing of any value in there, uh, it just isn't isn't mentioned. So it does exist. That that is in court record. That uh, how did Judge Vellis? How did that come about? That direct finding out about that directive to cancel the investigation. It's referenced on page paragraph fifty seven of the troopers' report attached to Vellis's uh, summary of it, and they discuss how I think it was uh, the chief of the. Criminal Division Bureau, uh, John Werner, had sent a directive to, I think, uh, Captain or Lieutenant Irwin from the, of the state police limiting the investigation. Mm. Mm. And that's it. All we know. Paragraph 57. If Judge Vellis had done his job and looked for, for misconduct, if those troopers had done their job, we'd know something. Right. But in this one paragraph, which is not designed to give any information, all we have is the fact that there was a directive issued. Given the fact that on April 5, Kazmarek is a good prosecutor trying to do her job, and by mid-April she's filing affidavits saying the investigation's over, my guess is in the directive which is issued sometime in there. At the end of March, she's, she's got a prosecution memo together, which, as I mentioned, is saying to find out what happened, let's indict her and she'll tell us. By the end of the year, they've indicted her. Her lawyer, lawyer for for Rock, is saying things like, I'd like to uh, work at a deal where we give you information in exchange for not being charged with any of the other cases in which she tampered the evidence. They decline (laughs) information, (laughs) and they don't charge her. No, no. We're going to give you de facto immunity on these things. So we're going to go above and beyond what you're asking for. We're actually going to give you a much better deal. And in terms of something you mentioned a while back during this uh, podcast, uh, when Farrakh was sentenced, the judge was told by Kazmarek, this is January 2014, that um, the misconduct had come back a few months before before her arrest in January. It was four or five months. The judge concludes that she had tampered, it affected dozens or maybe hundreds of cases. At the time, Kaczmarek conveys that to the judge. 
She's holding evidence saying that the misconduct was underway, well underway in 2011. She's arrested January 2013, tells the judge, went back a few months. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. Um, and the sentence is a reflection of that. Right. Of course, they agreed on the sentence, but that's what the judge thought when the sentence was imposed. And what did she serve? Did Farrakh serve? It's a year or like something? 18 months. Yeah. Something, yeah. Like, something like that. And, and, and it, it's... And Duke, Duke served what, two and a half out of three to five? I'm not sure how much time she actually spent in jail, but um, I do know at one point there was a, an investigator who talked to Farrakh about Dukin. And the response, in essence, was, ah, she helped me with the machine once. Yeah. I know right. her. And, yeah. and Dukin said the same thing about Farrakh in 2016 on an audio interview that we heard that she said, oh, you know, she used to, yeah, she did used to work there, but we never really talked. And then you see that freaking email right. where they're like BFFs. <laughs> they're like, oh my God, I'm going down to Fall River. Like, oh, by the way, um, help me with this lie I'm going to tell on the stand. Right. <laughs> it's, 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 it's bonkers. Yeah, the, the interesting thing about Farrakh, and I'm, I'm sympathetic to anybody who has addiction issues. Yes. Right. I don't think addiction should be criminalized. Uh, and I'm not going to take a position on whether Ms. Frock should have served more time, less time. Uh, that's not my focus. But what I will note, though, is that when it suits the government's purpose, uh, so for example, if, they, if, if someone is arrested in, a, in what's considered a high drug activity neighborhood, and we all know what that probably means socioeconomically, um, that they, uh, if they can get evidence that that person turned over drugs day after day, week after week, year after year, that person will be charged either as a, as a trafficker, meaning just by adding up the weights. The government believes that they can add up the weights and say, you, you are a kingpin, you are a drug lord, um, and, 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 and stick that person with a severe sentence that essentially for many people takes away the best years of their life. Um, why was th- why was that not applied to Ms. Farrakh? I mean, I'm not saying it should be, but it's interesting to me, and, and I don't think people understand that there's substantial arbitrariness and leeway in this war on drugs. That certain people, uh, especially uh, preferential uh, 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 people, get the benefit of all the doubts, and on the other extreme, people who have no uh, influential friends, who have no dirt on somebody else, they uh, have the book thrown at them. Why was why did no one take out a calculator and attempt to figure out how much drugs um, went in that did Ms. Frock at some point in her life possess and add them up and then stick her with the sentencing guidelines? To that question, we talk about the testimony of one of the prosecutors from the AG's office back when we had a hearing in December 2016. He testified that, in, in essence, we wanted Frock to go to jail, state prison. That was our objective. And... <laughs> Okay. If you if you if you want to believe that, um, I've got a bridge to sell you. <laughs> that 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 prosecutor uh, was in, in the same conversation discussing the fact that they had declined to investigate her. Well, yeah. If we had four cases against her, that's one thing. But what if we had five? Maybe same result. No, mm. six or seven, the same thing. They could have brought hundreds against her. They could have brought thousands oh, of cases against her. She was, and if you really wanted to put her in state prison, you would. Yeah. They didn't. And the point there is, there was no interest in putting her in jail for what she had done. 
Right. There was no interest in having her go to state prison. She wasn't like someone who, from a socioeconomic status, who is not going to do very well. There were other interests involved in just right. getting justice for what she had done. Well, the the issue right. with with the AG's office was they were charged with uh, investigating Ms. Farak, but it became a zero sum game. Every time Ms. Farak is found using drugs at work, someone's going to get exonerated, very likely. So it's a zero sum game, and so the the solution is well, just get a little bit on Ms. Farak. Don't actually investigate what she did because as we do that. Uh, it, each time we do that, it's going to be a, 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 a um, sort of like Pac-Man, another little uh, pellet that you're going to swallow, of have, which results in someone having to be freed. Exactly. And during that, there was a week-long hearing in Hamden Superior Court on this, and several of the prosecutors from the Attorney General's office who testified were very indignant about the fact that that October 2012 letter was written. How dare they suggest we don't have the integrity to do the right thing on this with respect to Dukin? That's exactly what they did in Farrakh. Because that letter was said from that was written to the governor saying someone independent has to do this. That letter had said basically what you just pointed out. That if if you're going to do this for real, a lot of convictions will go away. And there's a conflict between your role of preserving convictions and doing it for real. And so these indignant people would later be part of the team that or part of the office that did exactly what they were afraid of in that letter. Right. Yep. And it comes down to, you know, holding these convictions like they're the most precious thing in the world. Like it's Gollum in the ring of power, if you want to have a dorky reference in there. But like, seriously, it's... My precious, it's they want these convictions upheld at all costs. And the result of that, in terms of the big picture, will be they may lose all oh, yeah. convictions. And, and in terms of the effect on society of that, the last time Hinton was in operation was 2012. Right. So it's not if they lose all the 600-something thousand convictions from Hinton. We're talking convictions that go back to 1993, testing for 1993. It's not going to be doing much more than achieving justice. Mm -hmm. Telling the prosecution, you can't do this. Right. If you're dismissing a conviction from 1998, as we may be asking the court to do very soon, you're, you're not going to change much except make things right. 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 So the courts have that before them. And making right make, means for some people, it might be the difference in, in their ability to get a job, um, find housing, yep. um, and uh, it, may, you know, it may have other impacts. I don't even know, you know, you know child custody issues. I mean, there's a, I, can, I can see a lot of areas in life where someone who you know, may or may not have committed a crime, may or may not have done their time, um, but now we're sitting there saying, let's, let's, clean, let's clean the record on all of this. Uh, and there could be completely other life-changing uh, aspects that we're sort of standing in the way of if we don't uh, get this right. Right. On a subjective level, that would apply to each of those people to whom that in, that, in those circumstances. Yeah. On a, a, a larger level, if you have, if in a year or two, we have a, a mass dismissal of the cases from him, vacating everything it hit, hypothetically. 
what that would do would underscore to everyone here and throughout the country. It can't do this. Yep. The, the misconduct we've discussed over the last hour and a half or so, you can't do, you can't right. hide evidence. You can't deliberately not investigate. If right. that happens, then you pay the price. And that means, what, a half million convictions going away? But in your opinion, as a former prosecutor, shouldn't you want to pay? I mean, that shouldn't be a price. That should, that is what, that is justice served. That's true justice served to, to get Which rid is of what these. you do when you go to work as a prosecutor. Yes. You're working for justice and that's all you're doing. Mm-hmm. It's not if the it price. it turns out that this person didn't commit that crime, all right, that's fine. Yep. I have no skin in this game. I don't care if these, you know, it, it clearly these people have problems. I had no idea that they had problems uh, testing samples. They told me everything was on the up and up. Clearly it wasn't. Let's get rid of them. Move on. We're doing it right now. That's what you say. But I think what's going to happen, Jim, is they're going to start looking at the state police at some point. They're going to start it, at some point. There's going to be something that goes on there. They'll find something. I guarantee it. Because you're telling me that the state police are doing it the right... I mean, yes, they are. Like, they have documentation to back it up. They've been audited, apparently. They've been... You know, there's... The, apparently, they have a tighter ship there. But if if the motives are still there, you know what I mean? Like, of conviction and of getting getting things done correctly. I actually did a FOIA with the state police on all of their negative test results that they've had at the state police from 2014 till today. You know what they told me? They do not keep those statistics. I'd like to, I'd like to see something happen relative to the, the massive failure of the Bellows report. How these two captains miss all the misconduct. Right. Mm. If, if they were doing it with any integrity at all, someone would say, well, the attorney general points this judge to do this investigation. It can't find anything. Yeah. Why? Yeah. There's a reason. Right. All right. So yeah, we have uh, we've gone on for a while, and I think this has been a great conversation. Um, you know, just to wrap up, uh, Jim, we'd love to have you back uh, talking about, I mean, the OIG report itself, and just kind of going doing a deeper dive into that if you're interested. But um, I just want to say, great work on what everything that you've been doing this has been an enlightening conversation your work to get to bring justice to this is really um as a citizen of lifelong citizen of massachusetts i really appreciate it so thank you for your efforts this has been great you're very kind and it, i'd love to go back whenever you would like to have me back on i can update you as to what's going on and um it, it we do have so many good prosecutors in the state it's it's very possible someone will step forward soon and say, this has to stop. Yeah. We have to fix this and make it right. I don't know, but that may be on the way. Right. Well, for now, it's good. we're relying on the, um, on the uh, 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 effort and skill of some uh, very talented uh, and passionate defense attorneys such as yourself, and we're uh, both uh, grateful for uh, you and the great work that you've done. It's just stubbornness. I've been doing this for seven years. I'm not going to stop. <laughs> and that's what it takes sometimes, stuff. right? You just can't, you get it stuck in your craw and you can't let it go until it's right because you know how wrong it is. It's, it's insulting. Oh, thank almost. you. Yeah. yeah. Thank Anyways. you very much. Yeah, thanks, Jim.